Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. As COVID crashed into our collective experience in March of 2020, Liam Elkin was just 20 years old. Home from Yale University, he watched in bewilderment as New York City, for the second time in his life, became ground zero for our nation's calamity. A lifelong New Yorker, Liam had been taught to run toward crisis. And Liam and two of his friends saw that there was a population of vulnerable people for whom it was not safe or possible to get food, medicine, or supplies. Liam and his friends saw other people, like themselves, people who were not content to just sit on their sofas while the medical community fought this battle on their own. So in a matter of just a couple of hours, Liam and his friends pulled together a website and a few flyers asking for healthy volunteers that could bring food, medical supplies, and other necessities to the most vulnerable. As their call went viral over the next 72 hours with people like Blake Lively and Bernie Sanders sharing their initiative, they faced a decision. Would they, could they scale this thing to really meet the needs out there? Liam's answer to that question and his approach to building Invisible Hands Deliver is inspiring, informative, and wise far beyond his years. I've been talking about this episode with my own kids since I got off the phone with Liam, and I am so thrilled to be sharing it with you right now. So welcome to Liam and to you, my listeners. Good morning. Hey, Lee. Oh, well, you're right. <laughs> right, right there at that dividing line, aren't yeah. we? Yes, indeed. How you doing, Becky? I'm good. How are you, Liam? I'm doing well. It's good to talk to you. Yes, I really appreciate you taking this time. I, I, I keep racking my brain trying to remember how in the world I came across Invisible Hand Sliver. I know it was on Instagram, and I kind of remember this jolt of that is that is a really great idea. That's a really great thing. And immediately knowing I wanted to talk to you, it just took me some time to reach out. That's all. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you did. And thank you for those kind words. It's been a, a wild and inspiring and chaotic and devastating and beautiful year. Wow. I am speechless by how apt that description is. <laughs> and really, it's like a year and a half at this point, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, let's, so people know right off the bat, because I want them to be pulled in to your work and your story the exact same way I was, which is by hearing about what you do. And then we'll go back into the Great. backstory. So tell me, what does Invisible Hands Deliver do? Yeah, so uh, Invisible Hands is a volunteer-powered nonprofit delivering food, medicine, and other essentials to those most in need, including the elderly, the immunocompromised, the sick, people experiencing food insecurity, people with disabilities. Uh, we were formed in March of 2020 in response to the, the growing pandemic. I was on spring break from college, and uh, you know, I, I saw elderly people nervously shopping in grocery stores, mm -hmm. avoiding contact with others. I saw lines at food pantries growing exponentially. And I felt like here I am sitting on my butt with nothing but an abundance of time and a desire to help on my frequently washed hands. And there, <laughs> there, has, to be more, right? there mm. has to be more that I can be doing to help during this time. Mm -hmm. um, and so two friends and I started a group, uh, you know, 
we thought maybe we'd recruit a dozen or two dozen volunteers. We'd deliver some food and then, you know, I'd go back to college in two weeks. Um, and then, you know, 72 hours later, we had 1300 volunteers what? to volunteer with us. Um, and it, it was just this movement of communities coming together to support one another through a crisis. Um, and so mm-hmm. this past year, you know, uh, despite the isolation, despite the distance, we've been delivering to people who who otherwise wouldn't have had food or medicine um, or connection with other people, and right. so we're able to to provide them with that, which has been really exciting. And one thing that we've realized, though, is that the crisis is not just COVID nineteen, mm. but that these crises run deeper, um, and that they are ongoing. And that even as we get back to normal, we have to remember that normal was not good for so many people. Mm. And now it's on us to get to good. Mm. Okay. Well, that's even more amazing than I had realized, Liam. And I have a couple of follow-up questions. Um, So first of all, just a a statement, which is that a lot of us wanted to help in March Mm -hmm. of 2020. And you did it. (laughs) You made it happen, which is amazing. And I just want to reiterate for people listening in case they missed that number, 1300 volunteers in 72 hours. Yeah. And I, and I think that speaks, you know, I appreciate those kind words about me, but I I genuinely think like, you know, I I am one among many people and I've been very, very blessed and lucky to get to be a part of this movement but it really takes a village. Um, yes. And, mm-hmm. you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are so many people who volunteered their time again and again and again um, to serve their community, who stepped yeah. up and did what they could. Um, I remember there was a doctor who reached out in mm. maybe April of 2020 and said, you know, I, I work in the ICU. I see COVID patients, but, I, you know, I, I work these 18 hour shifts each day but I, I always wear PPE and I want to help. How can I help? Mm. And, and I said, what you can do to help is please, dear Lord, get some sleep yeah. um, and, yeah. and keep, keep up the good fight. Um, mm. Because, you know, and, and, and we had rules back then that were more strict than they are now about you know, not wanting people who see COVID patients to be delivering. But, you know, yeah. I, I was struck by the selflessness of that doctor, that, that unsung hero who works, mm-hmm. who works these interminable hours mm-hmm. Um and, and when his shift finally draws to a close, says, how else can I be of service? Mm. Um, and I think there's something in that, you know, where are their problems and how can I help? There's something in that ethos that mm. speaks to our collective humanity when facing a trauma as big as, as it was this past year. Mm. Well, I really appreciate that. And one of the other things that you talked about was connection, that you bring connection to those in most need. And I want to drill down into that word a little bit and um, how maybe maybe there's several ways that invisible hands deliver, invisible hands deliver, um, form connections. Because first of all, one of the reasons I was so struck by what you were doing and why I'm so encouraged and excited again right now listening to you and I'm I'm sure listeners are also is because this was such a divisive issue it continues to be such a divisive issue and I'm suspecting wondering if it's the case that you have seen people of many different ideologies and other differences come together 
um, mm. to serve in this. So can you talk about connection in that way? And I'm also curious about how does this work practically that you provide that that's so insightful, I think, of you to understand that this wasn't just physical needs for your clients. This was... Um, and there were emotional needs as well that needed to be met. So talk about how you do that. Talk about connection from both of those yeah. points. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to someone who who runs a food pantry who was mm-hmm. saying it's the food is important. Yes. But we also need to address the deeper hunger of social isolation yeah. that people will starve themselves to fit in. People mm. will run away from home to fit in. So in a way, you can think of community as almost more important mm. than food or shelter, mm. um, which I thought was interesting. I don't, mm. I don't know how much I like agree with that on a purely, you know, technical biological mm. level, of course, but like, <laughs> but, it's, um, but, but it was an interesting thought. It's um, something to ponder for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and there have been studies suggesting, right, that social isolation can be as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day yeah. and that prolonged social engagement can reduce your risk of early death by up to 50%. Um, so, you know, this was a real need mm-hmm. and um, particularly for vulnerable members of the community, for, for elderly people, for people with disabilities or who had, you know, issues with being immunocompromised. Um, it was not only a scary time because of the disease, but it was a scary time because people felt alone yeah. and people didn't feel like they were being cared for. Um, I got an email from uh, a woman who lived in Michigan, whose father lived in New York and he was in his eighties and he had been diagnosed with COVID. He, he lived alone. He had no resources um, and food services were backed up and he didn't know where to turn. And she heard about us and submitted a request and his volunteer delivered to him every week and dropped off food, medicine, whatever he needed. And then they would sit on either side of his apartment door. And she said they would talk about their lives and their fears and their joys. Mm. And it was this, I think he was 19, this 19 year old boy and this 83 year old man, um, mm. complete strangers to one another. They wouldn't have recognized each other if they passed on the street because they never once saw each other, mm. but they became friends. And he passed away from COVID. Mm. Um, And she said, I wasn't able to be there with my father as he was dying. Um, But this complete stranger, this new friend was. Um, And there is something in that spirit of service, of community, of friendship, um, of of pulling together, even as the world pulls us apart, that enables us to pull through. Yeah. and that has kind of been our guiding philosophy of pulling together to pull through. Um, I think your point about bridging ideological gaps, um, we, we've been very lucky to receive, you know, some shout outs from both, you know, Joe Biden and Ivanka Trump. Um, and, and I think that there is something about serving other people that is completely apolitical um, yeah. and that has the power to, lead us to see one another as, as people deserving of kindness yes. and justice and, and mutual respect. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I think, um, you know, we can sometimes become so moved by stories of, of people helping one another out to, to survive adversity mm. that we lose sight of the fact that maybe some of these adversities shouldn't exist in the first place. Mm. Um, for the first 
few months of the pandemic, I think, mm-hmm. if you called 311 and asked for food, they would say, we can't help you call invisible hands. <laughs> um, wow. What is 311? What, what is that? Yeah, 311 is the New York City like resource hotline. Okay. Um, okay. And so the, the fact that a group of 20-somethings and out-of-work actors yeah. could organize a crisis response more quickly than the city of New York um, was both a reminder of the power of community organizing yeah. and a scathing indictment of our government inefficiencies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I and would so say I, so. Yeah. And, and wow. I'm a true believer in the power of government to take interesting and experimental solutions to scale. And I actually think New York has, has in large part, gotten its act together on a lot of these things and had grab and go meals and, and a lot of other really great programs. Um, but we also have to realize that part of the problem here, part of the crisis is not just the virus itself, but is the, the lack of response to the crisis. Um, and that our systems were not set up well to take care of the most vulnerable among us in a crisis. Um, and so that contradiction that mm-hmm. government can be the best way to take things to scale, but okay. also that government is often unresponsive to the people it is supposed to serve um, is, is a real problem that we're going to have to grapple with increasingly moving forward. Mm-hmm. I wonder if leaders will look to you and what you all have done and could a government do what mm-hmm. three people and a team of volunteers did? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and we're incredibly fortunate to have, you know, a New York City Councilwoman sitting on our board helping advise us mm-hmm. on some of the, the policy issues and partnership issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think, and we have worked with the city of New York and some other philanthropic funders and corporate funders and and partners. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of lessons, first of all, for me to learn, right? I, mm-hmm. I started this group. I had a little bit of experience overseeing volunteers, but, you know, I certainly nothing on this scale. I yeah, let's let's budget. just clarify. You're how old are you? I'm 22 now. You're 22 and you were 20 when this started. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, and I was on spring break from college and I'd come back from like a voter registration trip and suddenly there was my city shutting down yeah. um, and I didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing, mm-hmm. but there I was doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's something to be said for when you see a need in your community, mm-hmm. you step up and you try to fix it. And that doesn't mean don't listen to the experts because Right. I, I listened so much more than I talked, especially in those mm-hmm. first few months, um, mm-hmm. to, to get a sense for what the landscape looked like, how we could be useful, um, mm-hmm. to try to leverage the the name recognition and the the funding that we were getting um mm-hmm. in, in the smartest possible way. Mm-hmm. Um and so so you know it's important to listen to the experts, of course, uh, but it's also important to trust your gut mm-hmm. and to and and when you see a need in your community, don't wait because you think someone else will solve it, because mm-hmm. if someone else had solved it, it would have been solved. Mm. 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 I really appreciate all of that, Liam. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So I am going to get back a little later in the interview to some of the nuts and bolts about mm-hmm. how and why this took off so quickly and how and why you were able to um, serve so many people so quickly. Um, so people listening, hang on, (laughs) but, um, as, as, as regular listeners know, one of the really important things to me in my podcast is to always talk about someone's work, but really focus into what made them the person Mm. that was able to accomplish this kind of work in the world, whatever it is. So that's where I would like to go now. I'd like to talk a little bit about what happened in 20 years (laughs) to make um, you this kind of person that was able 
to respond on a dime to um, to mobilize something like this. So I'd love to know just a little bit about you and your life, um, whatever it is that you think. Uh, well, let's start with this. How would you say that people describe you? Um, yeah, I guess, you know, it's hard for me to say how other people would describe me behind mm. my back. Um, <laughs> But but I think, you know, some of the things that I prioritize in myself um, and try to demonstrate toward other people is um, a diligence and hard work. Mm. Um, And (laughs) I I have always prioritized making sure that the work that I do is that that I do good work and that I do it well Mm. and that, um, that when I leave this earth, which hopefully will not be for a very long time, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that it mattered that I was here mm-hmm. um, and that I could have an impact on people's lives and making people's lives a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for, for the longest time, I didn't know what that meant um, or, or how I could do that. If, if my interest was in education or healthcare or, or whatever it was. Um, and I think like a lot of people, you know, you, you start off and you think I want to change the world. Right, changing the world has become this kind of uh, this slogan or, or rallying cry. <laughs> a very what, vague, nebulous one. Yeah, yeah. For like, <laughs> for what the aspirations of humanity can be. Yeah, and and I share that for a while, and eventually I realized, you know what? Maybe it's less about changing the world and more about solving a problem. Maybe uh, if we look to solve problems, mm. if we seek out problems, and we say what are some creative solutions that could be tried that haven't been tried yet? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's a better way of going about it. Um, mm-hmm. Because if we can address a need in our community, then then we can actually begin to have real world impact. Whereas if we're just always kind of searching to change the world, it, it doesn't mean anything, you know? Correct, um, correct, correct. Yeah, that's a um, fabulous reframing. What yeah. problem is there around me and how can I solve it? And it really doesn't matter if it's large or small. Sure. And I think that's important um, about to notice about Invisible Hands Deliver. You didn't actually start out to solve a large scale problem. No. You saw a problem and you set out to solve it in whatever way you could. Yeah. And that's I think that's a really amazing reframing. And <laughs> there, there's actually there's actually a verse in the Bible that I've always loved. And it says, if you're faithful in the small things, you'll be faithful in the large. And that's just always been like a way I, I agree that you approach like you never really know where something's going to go. So just do the best you can with the little things. Yeah. See, you know, see where it goes. So tell me about I mean, it's only been a couple of years that you've really even been out. Well, you were in your your parents' home, it sounds like, when this even started. So I imagine your parents must have shaped this this version of Liam <laughs> that you are right now. Um, other people in your life, tell me a little bit about the people that have loved you, shaped you, um, taught you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know... <laughs> Growing up, I always looked up to my older brother. Um, he's Aww. five years older than I am. Um, and I, I, are you a younger sibling? Uh, I, I, yes, I'm in the middle of two brothers and I have four boys. So okay. brotherly relationships are important to me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, for me as a younger brother growing up, everything my older brother did was just the best thing a person could do. Mm. Um, and the coolest thing and the smartest thing. Um, and so I, you know, 
he, he went to Yale. So of course I had to go to Yale, you know, like every, <laughs> anything he was doing was what I wanted to be doing. Um, and he really instilled in me this, these, these values of, of caring about other people and of working, working your tail off, um, not because you wanted to whatever, get, get an A on the test or get the, not, not for any product goal, but for valuing the process itself. Um, I was also a very anxious kid growing up um, and had a lot of anxiety. And the way that I found to get through it was through, um, through, through service and through community. Um, Because when you are honest and communicative and, and build relationships with other people, they can kind of help you see the world in a more controlled light rather than as this scary nebulous place in which we're living. Um, Mm. I think, you know, I, I think one of the events that defined me, despite me not remembering it, mm. was September 11th, um, because I was only two years old on that day. Mm. Um, but I grew up in a city redefined by it. Mm. And I, I grew up on the stories my mom would tell me about how she would go into a grocery store and see a firefighter and ask the cashier, can I pay for him? Mm. And the cashier would say, yeah, get in line. We've already had like seven people offer to pay for him, <laughs> you know? Um and, and just these, these stories of people mm. coming together and saying, you know, a hero is someone who does what they can. Um, mm. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the mini doc boat lift. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. narrated by Tom Hanks. It's like mm. 10, 15 minutes. Okay. Um, it's one of them. I, I watch it every year. It's one of the most beautiful short films about these um, skippers in, from New Jersey mm. who, when they heard about the crisis um, on September 11th, they, uh, they got in their boats and they went into lower Manhattan and started evacuating people who were running downtown and realizing, oh my God, this is an island that we're on. Um, how do I get out? And um, it was the largest water evacuation in history, bigger than Dunkirk and in less time. Um, and it was not huge, you know, battleships evacuating people. It was everyday fishing boats. Um, this is just incredible. People yeah. On. yeah. It's um, like the Cajun, they call it the Cajun Navy in New Orleans, right? Like it seems like now event after event, yeah. the same thing. They evacuate people. Yeah. yeah. And these flooded yeah. waterways. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And you, mm. you, you do what you can because you can. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's just a New York value at this yeah. point that maybe was always there, but really was um, galvanized by nine yes. 11. Yes. Interesting. Mm. And so I, I grew up feeling that I need to be ready to support my community if and when mm. a crisis ever strikes again. Mm. Mm. Um, and I remember seeing this video of Brian Stokes Mitchell, who played um, Miguel de Cervantes in Man of La Mancha and mm. sings that song, right? The quest, this is my quest mm. to follow that star. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and he was singing it in the middle of the pandemic out of his window um, saying, you know, uh, this is my quest to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. Mm. As, ambulances are driving by mm. uh, and, you know, and, and as we're all clapping for the medical workers mm. and I had spent the past few weeks, you know, seeing these lines at food pantries and seeing mm. trucks fill up with body bags, um, mm. seeing, you know, central park turned into a, you know, a makeshift hospital um, mm. and, and grave site. Um, mm. And this notion that there were people willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause um, I found so inspiring and, yeah. and so reaffirming. Um, mm. I think 
we as New Yorkers, but also just we as humans have a remarkable capacity to come together when, yeah. when called on to serve. Yeah. Um, and, and there is something in that spirit of service that I hope we will continue to carry with us moving forward. Well, you also have a gift for inspiring speech, <laughs> Liam. Um, and this is this is interesting. And I do have a couple of follow-ups on this as well, which is one, I think, um, so I'm from the DC area and um, have never lived in New York. So I speak for, I think, most of the country in that there's a pretty, um, there's a pretty strong stereotype about yeah. New Yorkers you that you are really blowing wide open here because the stereotype is that New Yorkers don't care about anyone but themselves. They can <laughs> walk, walk past anything in the subway. And that has not been your experience at all no. as a no, native New Yorker. Yeah. I mean, I think, <laughs> um, yes, I'm, I'm well aware of the stereotype <laughs> about New Yorkers. Um, I think, you know, we'll walk into you, you know, like, I, I think that part of it is um, New Yorkers are always in a rush. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think like, I, I genuinely believe that it is more about like, we have somewhere that we're rushing to because we're always late to things <laughs> that, is, that like, that we don't care. Um, mm. I've always found that if you stop a New Yorker on the side of the street and you say, Hey, do you know how to get to, you know, 108th and Broadway? They'll say, yeah, it's, you know, take a yeah. left there, right there. Mm-hmm. Like people are always friendly. They're just mm-hmm. also very much in a rush to get places. Yeah. Um, it's, it's hectic. It is bedlam. And I love it to, to death. I yes. was born in New York. I hope to die in New York. Yeah. It's, I, <laughs> That's I'm great. New That's great. And I also think that um, I, I get this as someone who is from a more populated area. Mm-hmm. I think also when you're around that many people all the time, I mean, you can't like, you know, your head be bobbing up and down and you, you can't <laughs> wave to everybody. You can't stop right. and chat with everybody. So it's just, it's almost a matter of coping yeah. and survival in such a heavily, <laughs> heavily populated area. So the other thing um, that you brought up and I, I would like to hear more about is that we don't really know when or where or how COVID came in, but we know that the first reported cases were kind of in the West Coast. And then there was this, um, you know, nursing home, and then everybody was kind of getting wind of it. But the truth is, it hit New York, while a lot of the country was no one imagined, I don't think, what or how bad it could be. Can you tell me a little bit more about what happened in New York City? Um, from your perspective, when did you kind of first become aware of what was happening and some of these some of these scenes that you witnessed that were really uh, apocalyptic? Yeah. Um, you know, so the first, I'm trying to remember how exactly the timeline worked, but I remember there, like some of the first cases in New York State were in New Rochelle, which is where my grandparents live. Uh-huh. Um, and so we didn't know if they were going to be allowed to leave their house, what was going to mm-hmm. happen. Um, so that, that was when I first started getting seriously worried. Um, and, you know, we, we all had a family group text an Elkins group chat where you're we like, all right, grandparents stay home, no leaving yeah. the house. We will bring you stuff if you need it, but yeah. you're, you're on lockdown now. Um, and I think very quickly after that, you know, I, my brother is in the theater world. We're a family that loves theater. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, so when, when theater started shutting down, we were heartbroken. Of course, we were also like, okay, you know, this is, <laughs> this is game time now. Um, yeah. And, and I think the public health messaging at the time, right. Was be a hero, stay home. Yeah. And I understood the importance of social distancing, but I also felt like that is inadequate. Yeah. It is not, it is not heroic enough 
to just sit on our butt and watch Netflix. Yeah. You know, there's got to be more that we can be doing. And one thing that my co-founder said that I really liked was um, what we should be doing right now is not social distancing. What we should be doing is physical distancing. Mm, yeah, physical I remember distancing. seeing that going around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I really liked that because mm-hmm. it, it was really hard. I mean, it, mm-hmm. like, frankly, I, I am still very much working through the trauma of March and April and May of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the feeling of we must be safe right now and we have to be wearing masks and we have to be, um, you know, distancing from one another and, and not seeing anybody, um, and being very strict about that with myself, because mm-hmm. it, it, I think in a lot of ways, um, just to psychoanalyze myself, I think it was a, a protective mechanism to almost, if anything, first of all, to keep people safe, of course, but also to distance myself from the agony of what was happening. Mm. Um, and as I said, of the, you know, of, of trucks just being filled up with body bags um, mm. and of funerals not being able to happen, people not even being given the space to grieve um, mm-hmm. and to reflect on the trauma because the trauma just kept going mm-hmm. and it was unrelenting. Um, mm-hmm. at the same time, I was so fortunate to be able to spend my days trying to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and working with people who were eager and excited and brilliant and, and creative and had all these ideas for how to build something new and exciting and, and service oriented with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I could really, channel some of that fear yeah. and anger and, and trauma into a productive uh, mechanism. Yeah, and that sure. that solution-oriented nature of the work of Invisible Hands has been really, really rewarding to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, New York faced a really tough time. We have before and we will again. That's mm-hmm. the nature of being, you know, a huge city. Yeah. Um, but it's also, um, you know, it, it, if anything, made me love the city more. I, I now... Mm-hmm. I'm in New Haven right now, back in college, mm-hmm. um, but I have a, a sign, like a, a beautiful painting uh, on my wall of New York City, and it says New York Tough on it, um, mm-hmm. because I feel that in my mm-hmm. core, New York mm-hmm. Tough. I love New York City, um, and I will forever. Um, it is a city with a lot of problems, but with a lot of heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you just brought up your co-founder. There were there were two co-founders. Yeah. Tell me about them. Were they? How did you know them? How long had you known them? Mm-hmm. What made you kind of choose them? It sounds like the circumstances chose the three of you together to jump into this headlong. Yeah. So it was, it was a really interesting way that it came together. So, you know, there I was feeling like I want to be useful. I don't know how. I feel like I just I, I want to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, at, and I'm feeling very useless right now. Mm-hmm. And I saw a post on Facebook from an old friend of my of my brother's. Uh, they went to middle school and college together. Um, she's five years older than me. She was always super cool, you know, very active. <laughs> and um, I saw her in a show in college and I was like, wow, she's amazing. Um, very much looked up to her. Um, yeah. Um, and, and she was saying, does anybody know of a volunteer service that I could volunteer for mm-hmm. to deliver food medicine to people in need? Um, you know, she was not looking to start a thing. She was asking if one existed. Mm-hmm. What's and what's her name? So we can just Simone feel. Policano. Yeah. Say it again. Her name is Simone Policano. Simone. Okay. Just so we feel a little closer to her while we yes. hear the story. Yeah. Simone. Okay. Um, yes. So Simone made that post and people mm-hmm. were responding to it saying, that sounds like a great idea. Would love to help out. I don't know of an organization that's doing that though. You know, let me know if you hear of one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I reached out and I said, what if we built that organization. <laughs> Amazing uh, statement. 
Yeah. Um, this was, you know, this was before I knew what the term operating costs meant. And, <laughs> anything that, you know, what we were actually doing. Um, and then um, uh, a third friend heard about this Facebook post, reached out. Um, neither of us knew her um, yet. Oh. And then we, you know, we, but we, <laughs> we looped her in. Her name is Healy. Yeah. Um, and then we, we got to work. And so we built a website and passed around flyers and put out the call to action on social media. And, 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 you know, I hesitate to use the word virality because mm-hmm. of what we've just been through, but I, you know, we, we were very lucky mm-hmm. to go viral and to get a lot of interest. I think because of the, the simplicity of what we were doing, mm-hmm. because it felt like something tangible. So that, what, that, what was the call to action? Yeah. So we were saying, you know, we're starting up this group to bring food and medicine to people who are stuck at home yeah. Um sign up to deliver, sign up to volunteer in our call center, sign up to volunteer on the back end. Um, you know, yeah. if you're a lawyer, we need legal help. If you're a doctor, we could use some medical advice. If you're an engineer, we're trying to build out our back end system. Yeah. Um, it was really cool because there were a lot of people with lots of different skill sets yeah. who were bringing their skills and their knowledge and their interests to bear, which was really inspiring yeah. to see. Um, so you must have had an idea. It feels like you, so tell me from the, from the space of Simone sending out this two, two questions from Simone sending out this hit. Does anybody know? And you saying, yeah, let's do it ourselves <laughs> to putting out a call to action. How many days, hours, weeks, months elapsed? <laughs> a few hours, a few hours elapsed. And you yeah. got all of this together. You must've had a sense to ask for that kind of help. Not just like, Hey, can I have a couple people volunteer? But I mean, you intended to scale this from the very inception of the idea, it sounds like. Um, I, well, it started out with us asking for volunteers. Yeah, okay. We started getting more and more interest. Um, yeah. That was when we started saying, okay, can you tell us what your special skills are? Because at first, literally, yeah. the idea mm-hmm. was not to scale it at all. The idea was um, someone will submit a request on our website or by calling us on our personal phones. Our personal phone numbers were on the original flyer. That was a yeah. big mistake. I'll get into that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know... Uh, and then the idea was someone would submit a request and then Simone would text in this group chat with all our volunteers. Hey, yeah. can anyone take this delivery? Someone would claim it in the group chat and then they'd complete the delivery. Once we had, you know, a thousand people signed up, we were like, okay, no, we, we cannot do it. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's when we started saying, you know, who, who has engineering, who's an engineering background, who has a legal background. Yeah. Um, so at, all that interest. yeah, yeah. So at any point, cause it was 72 hours that this, yeah. you know, was just exploding. At, did you feel internally like, yeah, yeah, I'm up to this? Or did you ever think, uh, this might be getting a little out of hand? This isn't what oh, I bargained for. Yeah. 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 yeah Tell so me sure. about walking yourself <laughs> through that process. Did you turn to somebody and say, like, should I hand this over to somebody else? Like, just tell me about that internal process. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I'll, you know, I put my personal phone number on the flyer <laughs> and then, um, Blake Lively put it, that flyer on her Instagram story with I don't, I don't however many million followers, oh, and then okay. and then it was on L.com. and then Bernie Sanders emails out my personal phone number to oh. his entire email list and says, "If you need free food, call this number." Um, <laughs> did not specify New York City. Did not specify any details about the fact that this was you know a twenty year old college student. Um, wow. He said, "Call this number," um, and so my phone started getting inundated with requests from people across the country, um, okay. begging for food. Um, and 
So yes, was I overwhelmed? Absolutely. I remember there was this, you know, I quite literally, I, there were times when I did not go to the bathroom because I did not yeah. have time. Um, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was exhausting and uh, debilitating yeah. in many ways. Um, and, and really devastating to have your phone filled up with messages from people yeah. explaining just the, the horrors that they yeah. were experiencing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everyone yeah. was sharing such personal stories. Yeah. You were the person that was receiving all of that. Yeah. And it, and it's tough to distance yourself from, I mean, people who have decades yeah. of training on this stuff struggle to correct from it. And right. I was this 20 year old college student who said like, Hey, can I help? And everyone said yes. <laughs> right. How um, in the world did Blake Lively get this? She's just somehow it's a friend of a friend of a friend. I mean, seven degrees or less. Right. Yeah. I, I certainly do not know Blake Lively. I responded to her Instagram story being like, Hey, thanks for posting us. And she did not respond. So <laughs> I, I, she I do or her team. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> So I, I cannot speak to that, but I, yeah. I think that um, what I can say is you never know if what you're starting is going to somehow right. weirdly by chance catch fire. Yeah. Um, that's not a thing to bank on or to do or a reason Correct. to do for. Yeah. But everyone, not everyone can get that. And that's largely luck-based. Yeah. What everyone can do is have an impact. A hundred percent. That's right. Someone. That's and right. That was what we set out to do was Correct. to have an impact on yeah. those people. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, once it started scaling, I mean, I, I con- constantly felt like I am so deeply not the right person to be doing yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and I think if I, I think I was right. And, and so the question then was, mm. okay, but here we are doing it. Mm. Um, do we abdicate our responsibility now mm-hmm. or do we figure it out? Do we build mm-hmm. this bike while we ride it? Mm-hmm. And we were getting money in, you know, with the first donations we got, I remember our, our original website, to your point about, did we think we were going to scale? Um, our first website, we were deciding between a $16 a month website or the $26 a month website. And the $26 <laughs> a month website could take donations. And we're like, all right, well, we'll probably make $10 a month in donations, right? Like someone will give us a hundred bucks yeah. and that'll keep running for 10 months. That's great. Yeah. Um, and it was a good choice that we did that you know, because once we started getting thousands and then hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars in donations, we're like, oh my God, like we could actually, first of all, it was going into my Venmo and Simone's PayPal. Oh, <laughs> um, okay. And we were like, are we going to have to like classify this as taxable? Income? Right, right. Because like, you weren't, you weren't a nonprofit at that no. point. You were just, so it, how, how, how just how yeah. much, how much did you get in March, 2020? How much money? Yeah. Mm, a great question. Um, I don't remember, but like I, I could find it out and get it to you later. It's um, gotta be in the, I, in the if you figure. had third, say it again. In the six figures. It, exactly. Yeah. If you had, if you had 1300 volunteers in 72 hours yeah. in one month, you were getting hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I, I do also have to say, I mean, honestly, this was right for, okay. My mind is exploding with things to say one, the trusting nature of people mm-hmm. That they mm-hmm. and and just how badly, right? This is just showing how badly we all wanted to help. Yeah. Thirteen hundred volunteers. People are sending money to a private Venmo account, yeah. just believing <laughs> that this isn't a scam and it's gonna yeah. do do something because everyone wanted to help. And that is there is something encouraging about that, isn't there, Liam? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think, you know, there's this new notion of mutual aid that is really taking fixture. Yeah. Um, it's a different model from more standard top-down philanthropy mm-hmm. um, that relies often on, 
you know, mm-hmm. on, on data and on, you know, research-based interventions mm-hmm. and on, to an extent, like noblesse oblige and just mm-hmm. rich people giving their money to these huge organizations. And I think there is a, an important space for those organizations as well, of course. Um, but there's something to be said for direct aid and mutual yep. aid and that notion yep. that we all have something to offer one another and we all have things that we can receive and need from one another. Yeah. Because I think one of the problems with charity is that there's an inherent power dynamic at play. There, Correct. Um, yes. Between the person serving and the people being served. Yes. Uh, and particularly with food insecurity, which is where we are, you know, heading now and, and is a big priority of Invisible Hands is going forward, is, you know, up to three quarters of people who could make use of a food pantry don't go because of the social stigma associated with experiencing food insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, that stigma needs to be eliminated, but we also have to recognize the ways in which we've been complicit in setting up a system where people feel embarrassed to ask mm-hmm. for help. Mm-hmm. Um it's seen as, you know, you, you feel lesser than. Mm-hmm. And so one of the benefits of mutual aid is that it tells us, it reminds us that that we all have value to mm-hmm. one another. And this is about solidarity, not charity. Mm-hmm. And if we are able to provide an efficient, a safe, an anonymous delivery system to these people um, and, and build genuine relationships with them, not mm-hmm. just drop food off at the door and then leave, um, you know, that can get us a long way toward building a more sustainable and, and sustained community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I like about the term mutual aid is that I, I can imagine a situation where you are as an organization now where someone could be the giver and receiver. They could need the yes. food for some reason, but be able to give the time or the, you know, they're healthy and can, yes. or the relational aspect. And I think that's just so much healthier for everyone because we fundamentally believe everyone has something to give, to contribute, but we act as if there's givers and there's receivers. And really what side of that divide you ended up on was nothing but luck. Did you and Simone and Healy, was this just a matter of luck that you guys had what it took in that moment to scale? Who was there next to you, kind of cheering you on, giving you advice, saying, let's go this direction or that direction? How did that work for you? Yeah. I mean, I... I think we could go, I could speak for hours, if not days, mm. about all the individuals and organizations uh, that supported us in those early days and into mm. now. Um, mm. I think I think the initial spark was luck. Mm. I think the our continued success has been due to continued engagement of of people, um, you know, being involved and committed to supporting their communities. Mm. Um and so we, you know, we got uh, pro bono legal support from a New York law firm called Wild Gottschall. Um, we got uh, engineering support and we got, you know, uh, we partnered with Robin Hood Foundation. They gave us a, a grant that was really helpful in the early days to help us begin staffing up our operations. Mm. Um, some of that work um, to, to build partnerships, to listen to the communities that we were trying to serve and make sure that we were actually addressing their needs, not just addressing a need that we thought they might have. Um some of that work was really foundational um, and, and essential for building us out mm-hmm. to be sustainable in the long term. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and that's why I think in in a way it was really good that none of us really knew what we were doing because we were aware that we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. We weren't experts on nonprofit structure or anything. And yeah. so what our priority for those first few weeks was do the best we can, but ask yeah. a lot of questions and take a you know a two ears, one mouth approach to the whole yeah. thing. And the way that happened is you just kept saying, okay, 
new need. We don't know how to do this. And somebody would respond. Okay. Next need. I don't know how to do this. And somebody would respond. Yes. Yes. Exactly. That's amazing. Um, that's 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 amazing, and I think that's such a, again, a testimony to your humility, to Simone and Healy's humility, and the importance of humility to just say we don't know, and then people who are amazing, the best at it, stepped up and said, "Oh, I know," and that's 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 so um, important because if I think the three of you had said like, "Oh, we'll just muddle through on our own," hadn't asked for that help, it probably wouldn't be where it is helping so many people. Right. Yeah. Well, I really, I think that's, I I really admire that in you. I think that's wonderful. Thank you. And again, I think it is a a real testament to the work of, of everyone who is willing to put their lives on hold and, and at risk to serve those in need. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that we've talked about, I mean, this never would have happened right without social media without technology, without Venmo. I was, I was like, Venmo had to be involved in this somehow, (laughs) you know, without all of these things that are so natural to you. So (laughs) I wrote this in the question and you probably saw, um, this people from so many different walks of life come onto this podcast and people doing so much different work. But one thing that's a pretty constant is that everyone comes with this sense of nostalgia, you know, Mm. for the recipe that they're sharing for the people Mm. that passed it along to them. And you're the first time I ever got a recipe from someone and you're like, I guess it came from the internet. (laughs) I thought that that is exactly like, that was like the, 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 um, the indicator of your age and your generation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. invisible hands delivered never, ever could have happened. Never. I think without someone who had such a natural command of the technology, mm-hmm. like these tools were just at your disposal. You knew how to use them and that's, and that's great. So my question though, is, um, as I was thinking through this, I was like, you know, that is the exact opposite of the generation that you were in those very first days serving, which was the oldest generation, the most isolated. And I'm wondering how, um, how did that, did that ever become, um, a rub or a disconnect or something that you guys had to work through, um, this like technology gap between you guys, the founders and most of the team of volunteers, and then this older clientele that you were serving. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, and that was one of our biggest questions was, mm. you know, food right now and, and medicine and social connection is so inaccessible. How do we make sure that what we are building out is not also inaccessible to these people? Um, and so, you know, I consider myself a digital native. I'm certainly not a, you know, pro on social media and I'm not, I'm not an influencer. <laughs> Digital um, native. That's the term yeah, that I was yeah. like, yeah, searching for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that I, um, you know, well, some things that we tried to do, um, you know, we built out an accessibility widget on our website uh, for the visually and motor impaired. Mm-hmm. Um, and we partnered with this company called user first that donated uh, their software to us, which we were very, very lucky to have. Wow. Um, and we also recognize, you know, a lot of people might be able to fill out these forms. So maybe, maybe someone will have their, you know, their kid fill it out for them, but we are also like, okay, you know, we want to make sure that we also have a call center running. Mm-hmm. And so 
I'm sure my phone number is still out there. We, you know, I do it home every month or so to, you know, see if it is, but we, we developed a, a new phone number that is staffed by volunteers who are trained in how to, you know, talk to these people um, who are in need and take down their requests and hear what their needs are. Um, and so we, we try to get people through whatever uh, mechanism of communication they're most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And so for some people that is the internet, you know, age is not necessarily a barrier to using the internet, but, um, and we try to keep our website friendly and clean and clear um, yeah, and accessible, mm-hmm. but we also, thank you. Um, but we also have a, um, you know, a call center for people who feel more comfortable calling. I get handwritten letters a lot also from people. Um, I recently got a handwritten letter from a woman who is a hundred years old, um, mm-hmm. who was served by invisible hands. It was a beautiful thank you letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and, and so I responded to her in kind, I think, um, wow. we, we can't just expect people to learn something as new as the internet. If, they spent their whole lives not using it. Yeah. Um, and so it was important to me and to the rest of the team as well, that we remain accessible and flexible and communicative with people on their platform of choice, be it the internet or phone or handwritten or whatever yeah. it may be. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Good for you. Thank you. Well, so, flexibility has always been baked into our model, right? So yeah. when, um, you know, when, when, in the early days of the pandemic, masking was not required. They were saying, you know, keep the masks for the hospital workers. And then suddenly there was a mask mandate. Nobody knew if there were going to be mask shortages. And so one thing that some of our volunteers did was organize what they called glove hubs, which were stockpiles of PPE in every neighborhood around New York City, um, where volunteers, if, if someone, if a volunteer ran out of PPE, they could stop by this stockpile and pick it up. And there was soap from Dr. Bronner's that Dr. Bronner's donated, you know, and so, um, to, to ensure that everyone had what they needed. And uh, you know, when there were concerns about the efficacy of the USPS running up to the 2020 election, um, Invisible Hands launched a local volunteer ballot delivery service to make sure that every ballot would be delivered and that every voice would be heard in this election. And so there's something baked into that, I think, tech that tech model, that kind of youth-led, youth-volunteer-based model of just, you know, let's be adaptable. And yeah. it's nice that we don't have... The, this large institutional memory and that we aren't mm-hmm. this gigantic frigate that's hard to turn, but then right. instead we're, we're a nice little, you know, we're, a, we're a fishing boat and we can turn pretty easily and be adaptable to needs in real time. Yeah. So let's talk about that being a fishing boat. Cause I want to talk about where invisible hands is going. I want to talk about where you and your life is going, but let's say where we are, right? We've mm-hmm. talked about where we've been. We're going to talk about where we're going. How big is invisible hands deliver? right now um and volunteer and client size um yeah so it's difficult to say Mm. because um a lot of the work that we do our model is fundamentally based on volunteer flexibility yeah and people will come into the system they'll volunteer a few times they'll leave they'll come you know because they're leaving the city and then they'll come back a few months later um so it's hard to say like how many active volunteers we have at any given time yeah um we have a database of about uh 16,000 volunteers incredible Uh, and so some of them you know volunteer once and then never again some of them you know do it regularly some of them come in and out yeah um but so that's, you know, that's, that's the, that's the best number I can give. Um, mm-hmm. But I, that additional context is important. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, um, we, we are serving New York, New Jersey, parts of New Jersey, uh, Philadelphia, and we have an Atlanta chapter as well. Um, and the hope is, you know, figure out how we can be an effective and useful service 
in a post-COVID landscape and then hopefully continue to scale and grow it as funding permits. Um, And as with any nonprofit, you know, funding is always the biggest barrier to scale. Yeah. 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 Okay. So legally, you're now a nonprofit and looking to look to the future. What do you want to see? Well, first of all, what are the COVID-related needs now versus what they were? And assuming those have diminished, mm-hmm. what needs have replaced those for your for your for your goals and your mission? Yeah. Um, so you know, COVID will continue most likely mm-hmm. to be endemic um, mm-hmm. for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are still seeing people who are in need, mm-hmm. but it's almost uh, like two lines crossing each other. So. With our first donations, we started up this subsidy program to not only deliver food for free to people, but to deliver free food to people, right? So we would Mm. subsidize um, people's groceries up to $30 per household per week. Um, After the Bernie Sanders incident, um, our (laughs) program became overrun. We were unfortunately forced to shut it down. um, And it was devastating. Why why is that? Why, why is it that it was devastating or why did we have to shut no, it down? Oh, no, I can see why it was devastating. Why was, why, why, how did that force it to shut down? Uh, we just didn't have enough money for it. Oh, okay. Um, because, yeah. The, there was just too much demand. The need, uh, the need outpaced. Yeah. 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 And, and we would have been bankrupt, I think, in like six days. Um, okay. And so we, we realized, okay, we need to shut this program down, which was devastating to, to everybody involved, including the volunteers and you know everyone who had, who had worked hard to put the system up. Um, and so we started thinking about how can we serve people who are in need without us needing to put our money on the line. Um, so we started working with food pantries and other mutual aid groups and religious institutions, places that had food or funding I that see. we could then leverage our people power to deliver to Beautiful. those people. Yeah. Um, and so long term, that is, I think, what our model looks more like. We're going to always continue to deliver to people who you know don't feel safe. There, there's some honestly, there's some um, people who have agoraphobia who we deliver mm-hmm. to as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so we try to be very flexible with our deliveries. You know, I consider our driving purpose to be delivering essentials to those in need. Mm-hmm. And essentials can mean a lot of different things. And those in need can mean a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. The COVID related need is diminishing. It's still there, but it's diminishing. Mm-hmm. And the the more profound need going forward is probably going to be um, food insecurity mm-hmm. related. Mm-hmm. People who can't afford their own food that we can bring to them. Yeah. Okay. So how about your future? What are you studying in Yale um, mm-hmm. at Yale? How have you re-envisioned your personal future based on, um, this, this surprise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, this pandemic has unveiled and exacerbated racial and economic disparities, um, on a profound scale. Mm -hmm. It has also revealed to me how many people there are who are committed to joining the fight, not just to criticizing systems. There's And there's a place for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but not just to criticizing systems, but to actually providing uh, solutions mm-hmm. to the gaps in public infrastructure mm-hmm. um, and to some of the problems that we're facing. Um, and I think that, that, that those dual forces of realizing how big the problem is and also realizing how many people there are to fight the problem mm-hmm. has reinvigorated and re-inspired my commitment 
to do work in community and or public service. Mm -hmm. So at Yale, I'm studying ethics, politics, and economics. Mm -hmm. Um, I always say with the goal of bringing more ethics to politics and economics. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the questions that has been made very clear to me this past year is, why is it that government wasn't solving these problems? Mm -hmm. Um, Why why is it that, you know, 311, that the New York City hotline needs to refer people to me or that Bernie Sanders needs to tell people to call me? You know, we should be calling our elected leaders to serve Mm -hmm. us. They're the ones who can actually scale these efforts. But it is unfortunately too often the case that our democracy is not democratic. It is not accountable. It is not responsive to the people who are, who is most supposed to serve. Um, and so to me, those, those two countervailing facts that government is the best way to take things to scale and that government is often unresponsive. Those two facts constitute my driving commitment to, uh, to, to work in government, I think probably, or potentially the nonprofit sector um, to make our democracy more accountable to the people Mm -hmm. it serves to, you know, achieve voting rights reform and campaign finance reform and uh, and structural changes to the way in which we approach some of these issues. Um, because as Dr. Martin Luther King said, philanthropy is commendable, but it must not cause the philanthropist to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice, which make philanthropy necessary. Mm. And so even as I am passionate about the work that Invisible Hands is doing, I also recognize that it will always be insufficient. And we need to get to a place where the needs that we are addressing don't exist in the first place. Hmm. Hmm. I appreciate that. So my last question, (laughs) because you're just a few years older than my, my oldest son. And I just Hmm. want to know, I'm very curious, where were your parents and your brother with you in all of this? Hmm. Um, My dad is a doctor. And when the pandemic struck, he was also working these 18 hour shifts, Mm. um, treating COVID patients, you know, Mm. growing wearier, but more determined each day. And my mom, um, was so helpful. Um, she's very sweet. She always talks about herself as like my executive assistant, because like we have invisible hands masks that need to be mailed. And she's always down to mail that stuff and, and to respond to emails when I get too inundated, um, it has been a, a real family effort, which is I'm very, yeah. very grateful for. Um, wonderful. But she's also asthmatic. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was very scary in those first few days. My dad was, you know, going into the into the hospital every day, taking care of COVID patients, and then coming home. And we didn't know he was giving it to my mom. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was, it was really scary. But they were always um, honest and communicative with each other and with me about mm-hmm. their needs and ways in which we could be of service to our community. Um, and that inspired in me a, a drive to yeah. be um, to be of service to others, and also to, to frankly to be more honest and communicative with those I love, um, mm-hmm. because it, it showed me how honest and open communication can facilitate a really mm-hmm. healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother was in Brooklyn; the theater world was shut down, and it was quite you know quite miserable there. Um, but he found ways to put on virtual theater. Um, and, and we were really excited to be able to support that and enjoy the arts despite, you know, despite the world pulling us all apart. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Okay. All right. We've got, um, one minute down. I am going to just real quickly ask, I didn't bring them up earlier. I'm going to ask about these pancakes. Do they have any special memories for you and your family or they're just something you love? Did you eat them during COVID? Oh, (laughs) all the time. Any relationship at all? Okay. (laughs) So this is, I mean, the, the banana pancakes thing 
<laughs> I did. I, I don't remember where I got the recipe from, but I have just, and I, I will spare your listeners the details, but I have a very bad GI system oh. um, that cannot take a lot of food. And yeah. so I'm always looking for like simple, easy yep. recipes um, that make me happy and make me feel, you know, full and fulfilled. Um, and literally just mash up some bananas, mash up some eggs. It's very quick, very easy. So I was yeah. only able to do it very quickly, but still feeling like I was getting a, you know, a full hearty brunch, which was really, right. which was really nice. Um, and, and it helped, you know, sitting the family down, um, and, or, or people whom I love down and, and having some, you know, easy to make, um, but glamorous feeling food, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, even during a time of stress and crisis. For sure. For sure. Well, I just think of, um, you know, you had like Popeye ate his spinach and then his biceps grew bigger. And I'm thinking, go, like yeah. these banana pancakes powered, yes. <laughs> powered invisible hands, <laughs> powered invisible hands. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Wonderful. If we could all just eat them and have such an impact. So um, anyone, anyone wants them, I, I'm always down to cook banana pancakes. So <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful offer. All right. Well, Liam, this sure you has can find my, uh, I'm sure you can find my phone number online if you look for it. <laughs> I, I know. I was wondering if that was still out there. It's got to be. So oh, yeah. well, I was going to ask, do you have a new number? I don't have a new phone number. I do still get calls um, and I changed my voicemail really? to refer people to our, to our main number. Okay. Okay. Smart. Good for yeah. you. Good for you. Yeah. Well, Liam, I have enjoyed this so much. I think, um, again, the biggest, the biggest thing that I just really appreciate is like, let's just look, what's the problem that can be solved. And then we leave it. It's out of our hands then, right? We leave it to God really like how big does that solution get? That's, that's not in our hands, but we can always ask what problem needs to be solved. I really, really appreciate that. Um, Liam, and I really, again, appreciate the fact that when it looked like, hey, this can be a much bigger solution than you ever imagined, that you were willing to just keep on fighting through what I'm sure was a lot of um, fear, a lot of self-doubt, and you were humble to look outside yourself for help. You were willing to accept that help, and um, you've accomplished something that really is inspiring and exciting. Um, and more than that is actually genuinely helpful to many, many people. So well done. And thank you for, you know, kind of showing us how we can go off and do, do our things. That's very kind. Thank you, Becky. I appreciate that. Mm, my pleasure. All right. Just tell everyone where they can find Invisible Hands Deliver, how they can get involved if they'd like to. Yes. Please sign up to volunteer. If you need help, uh, you can submit a request uh, or consider making a contribution at invisiblehandsdeliver.org. Awesome. Thank you so much, Liam. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Liam for his time, his wise and inspirational words, and really all that he and the organization of Invisible Hands Deliver has accomplished over the last 18 months. Listeners, I would love to remind you again that The Storied Recipe has a website where you can find a blog post and lots of photos for every single recipe any guest has ever shared with us, all of the show notes and contact information for every guest, and also lots of access to free food photography resources and other resources for creatives. If you would like to support the podcast, the best way to do that would be to shop the Storied Recipe Print Shop, where you can find 
fine art prints, large canvases for your kitchen walls, and even smaller sets of prints that all celebrate nature, produce, and my guests' stories using extraordinary light. Again, links to all of that are on the storiedrecipe.com. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.